One of, one of my most favorite stories about the life of being a pastor's kid comes from a pastor's kid who I met long before I had pastor kids. And I was a brand spanking new associate pastor at a very, very important church in a very important southern town with very, very important people in it. So one day, we were in the reception line, and I ended up standing next to the senior pastor's son. He was about six or seven at the time. And one of the things that that my kids, that any pastor's kids will tell you, is that from the time that they are born, their parents are always having a conversation with them that says, when you are at church, you will look people in the eye, you will be polite, you will say hello, and this is just how it will be. And, and I am sure that his dad had the same conversation with him. So there we are. We're in this line of, of this very important church in this very important town. And this very important lady comes through the line. She is a longtime distinguished member of the church, an upstanding member of the community. And she walks up to him and she says, good morning. And he did exactly what he was supposed to do as a pastor's kid. He said, good morning. And, and then she said, do you know who I am? And he wanted to follow his father's instructions. And so he just announced what he knew to be true. Yes, my dad said that you are Mrs. Nobody. <laughs> so that little guy answered the question which he knew to be true, in the worst possible way. Now, he's not alone in this. Often it's the case that we'll come up with the right answer, but for the wrong reason, especially when it comes to how we think about our relationship with Jesus. In verse 7, it says that Jesus went on, on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist and others, Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. Well, these are some of the best wrong answers that the disciples could come up with. And they were wrong because all of the prophets were already dead. The disciples knew that that Jesus was not from the grave below, but from heaven above. And what's great about this question who do they say that I am, is that it inspires us to think a little bit beyond ourselves and our own self-interest and to begin asking, well, who is God? Who is Jesus? And what does that mean for me? So then Jesus asked the disciples, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And everyone else starts looking nervously at each other. You know, class, and, and you don't want to be called on. You start looking down and you're fidgeting with your fingers. Nobody says anything, and Peter steps forward, and Peter announces, you are the Messiah. That's the right answer. So for this brief moment, Peter must have basked in the glow of of being Jesus' star pupil. And yet, he's about to find out that he had the best, worst answer. Because, see, he had the right answer, but he had it for the wrong reason. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the chosen one, the son of the living God. And in Peter's mind, and to be fair, likely in the minds of all of the other disciples, that means revolution and conquest and victory. 
To Peter, the Messiah is this, this warrior hero like David who drives out the hated enemies and conquers all the neighboring countries and, and spreads, spreads the Jewish empire from sea to shining sea. That's a confusion that exists for many of us still today. We have a Jesus like that that we have created. People find all kinds of, of causes that they believe that, that Jesus would endorse for them. And so they just go ahead and claim victory in Jesus' name. Now that is just as true for the clerk of court in Kentucky as it is for nations that go to war under Christ's name. That's not the victory that we were promised. The victory that we're promised is Jesus' victory over death. Nowhere, nowhere in Scripture does it say that we're going to have victory over social issues or morality or war. In fact, what Scripture reminds us is that in this world, we're going to have trouble. And we're quickly coming to an age where becoming a follower of Jesus is going to require much more of our hearts and our minds and our souls than it ever has in any time in American history. The victorious Jesus, the one who endorses our personal standard and our personal behavior and who condemns those who are not like us, that's the Jesus that far too many of us confuse as the Messiah. And Jesus wanted to get the record straight about that real fast. So when Jesus describes his true mission, it shatters Peter's imperial dreams. And if you really think about it, the false dreams that so many of us have of him today. So for the first time in scripture, he reveals his master game plan. Verse 31 says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and after three days rise again. Well, who... Who wants that? Who wants to sign up for that? Suffering, rejection, death. That's how my daughter feels when I volunteer to chaperone one of her trips. <laughs> this is not the Jesus that everybody was anticipating. This is not who we want to put out there as the foundation of the faith. What a PR nightmare. Nobody wants to follow that kind of Jesus. And yet, in verse 32, Jesus said all of this very openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's like, Jesus, this, this is not going to work. You are supposed to be here to accommodate what I think I need to be doing and what everyone else should be doing too. And if you endorse what I do, then everybody's going to follow it because you endorsed it. See how, see how we make that happen for ourselves? But then Jesus, turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Peter, the star student, get behind me, Satan, for you're setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Now that happened so fast that you might have missed it. Peter had just gotten it right about Jesus. But here we are in verse 30, 32, and he's become the voice of Satan. One moment, Peter's a blessing. The next moment, he's a barrier. First, the voice of God speaks through him, and then it's the voice of Satan. What happened? This confusing this confusing twist must have made Peter's head spin. But it proves to us that it is possible to have all the right information about Jesus and still be terribly wrong. You may have a theological education and still miss the point. You can be an elder or a pastor, give all the right answers, and still be terribly wrong. You can sit in the pews year after year, attend countless Bible studies, and still not know the Lord. That is one of the hardest things that a pastor ever has to say. 
is that your ability to sit in a pew and open a Bible does not mean that you know the Lord. And yet somehow there are multitudes of people who claim to believe in Jesus Christ or God and yet want nothing to do with his church, the family of Christ. So who we think Jesus is really matters in terms of what our relationship to him is going to be. Is Jesus a historical figure, a, a wise teacher, a prophet, a crazy man who taught a lot of impractical things? If that's all that Jesus is, then he's going to be easy to ignore or avoid or dismiss. He changes nothing. But, but if Peter is right, if the angels who sang at his birth were right, if Jesus is the Savior who is Christ the Lord, then that changes everything. Because what that means, it means that God has come looking for you. That God is going to put it all on the line for you. That God is here to liberate you from sin and death and evil. So if Jesus is the Savior, the Christ, the Lord, if that's who Jesus is, then it changes who you and I are. It's going to change the purpose of your life. The way that Jesus saves us from sin and death and the devil begins with him saving us from ourselves. Let me show you how that that works. In verse 34, he called the crowd with his disciples and he said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now we confuse this horribly all the time. Deny yourself. He doesn't mean deny yourself something like deny yourself dessert or a new pair of shoes or a decent safe place to live. To deny yourself is to surrender ownership of your life. Now Sung and I recently finally got to sell our house in Pennsylvania. And I have wanted to be done with this for a very, very long time. But I have to say, there's that moment, there, there was that very brief moment when I'm signing the final documents where it hit me that that house is no longer mine. My ownership of that house is completely and utterly gone. Technically, if I stood on the lawn... I would be a trespasser even in a house that I know so well. So when Jesus is asking you to deny yourself, he's asking you to turn over the ownership rights of your life into his hands, which understandably seems completely crazy. But no matter how much you think that you own your life, the reality is that there's going to come a point in time might be today, might be tomorrow, might be years from now, but at some point, it will only be a matter of time before you have to give it all up. And that's why Jesus says, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. It just makes sense. The purpose of your life is not to acquire and accumulate and achieve. The purpose of your life is not to hold on to your life. No matter how hard you hang on to it, you're still going to lose it in the end. That comes with a 100% guarantee. But if you give up the title and the ownership of your life to Jesus, you're going to get it back now and for eternity. That is also a 100% guarantee. So we're then called to pick up our cross. And I don't want you to confuse that with the expression, that's my cross to bear. 
That expression refers to burden. What Jesus is talking about is death. In Jesus' day, when anyone picked up a cross, it meant only one thing, that they were going off to die. Condemned prisoners were compelled to carry their own crosses to their places of crucifixion. So what we're talking about involves a journey of death. That is not what the disciples expected. That's not what they wanted. When Peter said, you are the Christ, he assumed that the warrior Messiah would say, take up your arms and let's put the enemy to death. And instead, Jesus comes along and he says, take up your cross and put yourself to death. Turning the ownership of your life over to Jesus may be a single decision to surrender, but it is accomplished by putting to death your selfish desires. This, this is a journey of death, and that journey is a daily walk that asks us each day, when you get up to renew that commitment, are you willing to surrender? When we let go of our selfishness, what we find is that our souls start to thrive. Either our selfishness will live or our souls will live. And that's why Jesus says in verse 36, For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Now, this, the last passage, the last part of this passage is what I consider to be the indicator of each one of our heart statuses when it comes to how we truly feel about our relationship with Christ as it relates to our own security, our own popularity, and our own selfishness. In verse 38, he says, Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. When we treat Jesus as the endorser of our victories for our chosen cause, we find out rather, rather quickly that political correctness will cause us to hold our tongues and remain silent. Because when we see Jesus as the warrior Messiah, it gets hard to speak up if we're not looking to engage in the battle personally. So we have to be very careful about how we view Jesus. If we make that choice to surrender ourselves to Christ, which I think we just have to be honest about, that's a tough thing to do. It is a tough thing to say that Jesus is in control, that he is the owner and author of our lives. It is a humbling experience to do. Well, once we do that, we've already made the decision that we're going to lose all the things that the world values anyway. Power, money, stuff. So we don't have to be ashamed that we're going to lose more. We've got nothing left to lose. But yet the world has everything to gain when we introduce them to a Savior who came looking for us, who has put everything on the line for us, and who has come to liberate us from our sin and death and evil. So I want to ask you, I want you to really think about this. What is it in your life that might hold you back from talking about Jesus out in the world? What is it that keeps you from speaking out against the ways of the world that so clearly, so vividly oppose the things that Jesus taught. I don't think, I really don't think it's because we don't love Jesus. I don't think that's it at all. I think at the end of the day, most of us are still trying to save ourselves. We want to save face, we want to fit in, we want to fly under the radar. 
But when we do that, we are not being our truest, most authentic selves. Can you imagine, can you imagine if I get on a plane tomorrow, right, which I'm going to do tomorrow morning when I get on a plane, I get on a plane tomorrow, I sit there, I start talking to the person next to me, I tell them all about my life, but I never mention that I'm a pastor, I love the Lord, that my life is changed because of that. You who know me would say, well, then that's not who Hope really is. Hope's pretending to be something that she's not. When we are not able to articulate our faith in meaningful ways, we're trying to save ourselves because we're concerned that, that the world might take something away from us. And instead, what we've done is that we've abdicated We've abdicated our life to the culture, and we've let culture control us in a way that couldn't be any further away from the freedom that we would have in Christ. It's in losing our ability to to just fit in and, and to just get by, to just be part of the crowd, that lets us gain a life that is authentic, a life that has freedom and love in the Savior. So my friends, what I would say to you is do not let the world define you. Speak up now for who Jesus is in your life or ever hold on to a life that is defined by something less than the love of Christ and the promise of eternity. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we, uh, we confess there are times when we would prefer folks not know that we might lose something, some kind of standing or position or friendship But we stand to lose so much more when we deny who you are in our life. Because you gave up all that we could have everything. So help us to rethink who you are to us. More than a friend, more than a teacher, more than a warrior, you are our Savior. First, last, and always. In your name we pray. Amen.